Forced Migration Review, Issue 52, May 2016 The Weakness of Resettlement Safeguards in Mining by John R. Owen and Deanna Kemp Given the levels of uncertainty that surround mining activities, it is questionable whether current planning practices can safeguard against the risks associated with displacement and resettlement, and whether industry practice is consistent with the responsibility to respect human rights. Studies of displacement and resettlement associated with mining operations continue to demonstrate consistently high levels of impoverishment among displaced people, and note one, and that knowledge building and management practices within the mining industry to uphold international standards are weak, and note two. The implications of this are far-reaching. Host and settlement communities will confront heightened risk of human rights violations, poverty, and social instability. Governments will bear long-term liabilities caused by the displacement, including pressure to address impoverishment risks in remote locations. Companies will experience increased opposition and reputational risk, as well as higher operating costs when resettlement issues remain unsolved. Finally, international financial institutions, IFIs, will feel the effect of heightened public scrutiny over their adherence to due diligence vis-à-vis basic human rights in their lending practices to the extractive sector. In 2001, the World Bank established its Operational Policy on Involuntary Resettlement, OP 4.12, based on a set of known displacement and resettlement risks, to guide lenders and states in undertaking due diligence for large-scale development projects. Michael Chernia's Impoverishment Risks and Reconstruction Model for Resettlement, and Note 3, is widely recognized as the conceptual foundation of both the World Bank's Resettlement Policy Framework and the International Finance Corporation's Performance Standard 5, IFC PS5, on land acquisition and involuntary resettlement, and Note 4. The IFC PS5 has become the default international standard for the mining sector, and while civil society organizations have not explicitly endorsed the IFC standards, there is nonetheless a practical acceptance that the standards provide a minimum for protecting affected populations from known resettlement risks. Open box. Displacement is a common occurrence in mining developments, but there is a marked absence of data on its scale and frequency. Data are available on a case-by-case basis, but this is dependent on developers or third parties disclosing planning documentation. Individual cases include, bullet point, construction phase of the Ahafo gold mine in Ghana involved the resettlement of 823 households, 2004. Bullet point, Nui Fao gold mine in Vietnam resettled 884 households, 2005. Bullet point, Anglo-America's Limpopo mine in South Africa resettled approximately 957 households, 2005. Bullet point, the Pulbari coal mine in Bangladesh reportedly resettled 9,760 households, circa 2008. Bullet point. Glencore's Extradas Prodeco coal mine in Colombia resettled 600 households, 2010. Close box. Planning in a highly volatile market. The primary underlying assumption in international safeguard standards is that the risks associated with any displacement and resettlement can be predicted and mitigated. If developers make efforts to identify the risks and plan accordingly, it follows that fewer risks will materialize for the displaced population. A second assumption is that developers will actively work to protect their own self-interest. The standards are thus designed to assist companies to diagnose and respond to project-based risks and protect their so-called social license to operate. 
Taken together, these two assumptions suggest that resettlement risks can be managed and that mining companies will invest in resettlement planning because it is in their best interest to do so. However, there is little evidence to suggest that mining companies agree that investing in social safeguards makes good business sense. On the contrary, many mining companies fail to calculate the full cost of resettlement and tend to defer allocating the necessary resources. The ability of developers to predefine the scope of a large-scale capital-intensive project is critical to the planning-as-a-safeguard proposition. Knowing what land will be needed and what impacts will be felt in which locations and at which phase of the mine's life cycle under which market conditions is pivotal to whether a developer will be able to effectively design and resource a program of appropriate and affordable measures to minimize the negative impacts of people being resettled. But predefining these elements is difficult when bringing a large-scale mine into production, especially given variables such as the availability and affordability of land, water, energy, and new technologies, and rapidly changing market conditions, including consumer demand for commodities. This can result in projects taking over land and causing displacements on an ad hoc, opportunistic basis, rather than as an organized front-end activity, that is, at the commencement of the mining project. A high proportion of resettlement events occurs as the result of project expansions during the operational phase of mine life, once a project has proven its profitability. Unless mining and resettlement planning takes into account this element of uncertainty and occurs within an institutional framework of responsible governance, planning may not be the safeguard instrument that it is so readily assumed to be. Uncertainty, Regulation, and Informed Consent when governments initially permit a mining project, permissions are based on a project design with stated risks and plans for mitigation. Where communities are involved in consultation processes, it is the initial project design that is presented and discussed. What the project may actually look like in future is unknown. Mine expansions, even if incremental, result in changes in land use, as well as social and environmental impacts. A project that, on paper, did not involve involuntary resettlement in the early stages, may soon after necessitate resettlement in order for the project to remain economically viable. Newmont's Ohafo Gold Mine in Ghana, for instance, resettled communities in four separate stages between 2004 and 2012 in order to accommodate additional infrastructure and an increasing need for land. As a front-end activity, resettlement planning allows developers and governments to make decisions about what social and economic services are needed to support displaced and receiving communities and how those costs will be met over and beyond the life of the project. The planning window for displacements that may occur in the operational phase of mine life is often narrow. This tends to result in short-term reactive planning without clear strategies for how resettlement risks will be resourced and managed into the future. At the Porgera gold mine in Papua New Guinea, for example, over the last 30 years, many households have been relocated on more than one occasion within the geographical area covered by the mine's lease. This practice of ad hoc relocation and the uncertainty as to whether additional relocations will be needed constrain both the mine's ability to operate and the ability of residents to maintain a basic standard of living. Other front-end considerations bring human rights to the fore. The issue of free prior informed consent, FPIC, raises important questions about how power is exercised in major development projects. Although the interpretation of what FPIC can offer communities varies, it is generally understood as advancing the rights of indigenous people, with advocacy organizations emphasizing the right of communities to veto development projects.
While many in-country jurisdictions do not support the right of local communities to reject projects outright, FPIC is increasingly being promoted as a means to strengthen the voice of communities in consultation processes, including relating to resettlement. As above, a major challenge exists in terms of communities providing consent for a mining project to have the right to proceed when it will inevitably evolve beyond what the parties had originally agreed to. While in some cases companies may defer resettlement until it can no longer be avoided, it is also true that companies may not have information at hand about how the project will develop in future. Even in instances where companies have access to this information, they may not engage in a process of meaningful dialogue with affected communities. This is not to suggest that planning cannot or does not occur in these circumstances. The issue is rather whether planning under these circumstances has a safeguarding effect that it is presupposed in international and corporate policy frameworks. The provision of information, choice, and opportunities for consultation are all possible, even when resettlement planning occurs on an ad hoc or opportunistic basis. Participatory activities can be constructed even within heavily compressed timeframes, and information can be disseminated in a fashion that satisfies basic compliance requirements. However, integrity of process is clearly critical to the underlying value of planning as a safeguard. This would involve resource developers taking active responsibility for planning and managing resettlement risks. The particularities of the mining industry and the tendency of companies to defer resettlement until deferral no longer makes good business sense, casts serious doubt on the ability of companies to safeguard through planning. Unless there is a greater commitment to resourcing resettlement, not just planning for displacement, Impoverishment will continue to be forced upon people resettled by mining. Ineffective Incentives and Deterrence Nation-states are progressively updating mining and environmental laws relating to resettlement in order to bring national regulatory instruments into closer alignment with international standards and policy frameworks. At the same time, NGOs are more actively campaigning against mining companies that fail to protect displaced persons from resettlement risks. Even with stronger incentives in place to plan for displacement and resettlement, however, the particular characteristics of the mining industry will continue to militate against front-end planning. The mining sector has long promoted the view that it is in the industry's best interest to invest in corporate social responsibility initiatives and to maintain strong relationships with host communities. According to concepts such as social license to operate, Mining companies need to achieve an agreed level of social performance in order to continue operating within a given context. Social license assumes that communities can and will withdraw their support for a mining project, that withdrawing support will have a major detrimental effect on the economic viability of the business, and that mining companies proactively manage the risk of losing their social license out of self-interest. Current evidence would suggest, however, that mining companies do not see resettlement as a significant risk to social license or to the viability of their operations. It appears rather that companies ignore that risk until such time that impacts ensue and a crisis presents a risk to the business. In other words, companies are unlikely to do the right thing solely on the basis that it will be bad for business if they do not. When lenders are directly involved in enabling displacement, one might expect their additional oversight to yield an improvement in the way developers approach the management of resettlement risks. However, a recent internal review by the World Bank Group and reports by various consultants and academics highlight the lack of enforcement by lenders, even after repeated instances of non-compliance have been identified. Rather than reducing resettlement risks, 
Lenders have instead become complicit in mining's impoverishing effects. When resettlement risks materialize, displaced persons face real harm and deprivation. Significant shifts in mining industry practice are required if social safeguards are to have a meaningful effect on the ground. John Owen, J-O-W-E-N at in-dev.org, Honorary Senior Research Fellow, Center for Social Responsibility in Mining, University of Queensland. Deanna Kemp, d.kemp at smi.uq.edu.au, Associate Professor, Center for Social Responsibility in Mining, University of Queensland www.csrm.uq.edu.au Endnotes Endnote 1 Adam A. B., Owen J. R., and Kemp D., 2015 Households, Livelihoods, and Mining-Induced Displacement and Resettlement The Extractive Industries and Society 2-3-581-589 Owen J. R. and Kemp D., 2015 Mining-Induced Displacement and Resettlement, a Critical Appraisal, Journal of Cleaner Production, 87, 478 to 488. And note 2. See Lewis C. 2012, Business, Human Rights, Responsibilities, Forced Migration Review, Issue 41, www.fmreview.org slash preventing slash lewis.html. Endnote 3. Chernia M.M. 2000. Risks, Safeguards, and Reconstruction. A Model for Population Displacement and Resettlement. Economic and Political Weekly. 3541. Pages 3659 to 3678. Endnote 4. The International Finance Corporation. 2012. Performance Standards on Environment and Social Sustainability www.ifc.org slash WPS slash WCM slash connect slash 11548 a 255 db 96 fb ffd one afd 13 d 27 slash capital PS underscore English with a capital E underscore 2012 underscore full with a capital F hyphen document with a capital D dot PDF. FMR is an open access publication. You are free to download, copy, distribute, or link to this article, as long as it is for non-commercial purposes and the author and FMR are attributed. All articles published in FMR are licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license.